Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. Let me begin today back in 1966 when I'm sure no one in this room was born. Um, a television show uh, premiered, and it only had moderate success in its a very small three-year run, initial run, and, um, but it's become very, very iconic in so many ways in our culture. You know what I'm talking about? Star Trek. Star Trek. You are correct. <laughs> you get two gift bags on, on Wednesday just for that Star Trek. Almost 60 years later, though, I mean, imagine the, the just absolute impact on so many different parts of our culture. It's had a million iterations in movies. And one of the quirkiest tropes that came out of Star Trek, I'm not a big Star Trek fan, but I know I've heard of this at least, is something called the red shirt. Anybody know what the red shirt is? Now, the red shirt, you can see it here on the screen. The idea developed after fans began to notice that characters in the show who wore red shirts almost always appeared very briefly within the story. They didn't really do anything except just kind of push the narrative along and stand in the background. And more often than not, red shirts almost always die. So you could almost just tell over and over again as you're watching Star Trek, if they have a red shirt on, the likelihood of them dying in the episode goes up very, very high. And it's become like this part of our vernacular entertainment. When you call someone a red shirt in a movie now or in a TV show, it means a background character. It's a scene filler. It's someone who's essentially unimportant to the larger story itself in the grand scheme of everything. Likely, they will be forgotten. And as we enter into, once again, as we do yearly as followers of Jesus, this Christmas story we return to year after year after year, there, there are people within the Christmas story that sometimes get relegated to red shirt status, that get background assignments, that don't seem to move the narrative along in any meaningful way. We come to the more well-known characters most of the time, but one of the people I think that's often left in the background, often completely ignored, often doesn't even seem like they are moving the story forward, is Jesus's adoptive father, the enigmatic man that we know as Joseph. You probably don't know much about Joseph. The Bible doesn't talk very much about Joseph. Now listen, Mary gets a lot of attention during this season, and rightfully so, she carried the child. It's like if you were having a baby and everyone congratulated your husband for doing everything. I'm sure, ladies, you would be very upset about that. Yes, Mary deserves the attention. Mary is the hero of the story. She carried God in her womb. But Joseph, he enters into the story very quietly, and he sort of fades into silence. We know so little about him. We don't see or hear anything about him after the first few chapters of the Gospels. And we, we, all we know is just kind of what we see in stories like we're looking at today, like we've just heard. Matthew 1. Let's return there again with me on the screen. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her 
quietly. Now, in the time of Jesus, to be engaged to be married was more than it is today. Nowadays, it's just a ring and an announcement on Facebook, and that's about it. You can break it off and not tell anybody, but back in the day, it was far more significant. It was a legally binding contract between two families, and so when you were engaged, this did not happen in isolation. This was a very public event. It happened with interconnected lives with two different families who had a lot of things happening between them, a lot of threads that were being tied together financially, culturally, everything when two people were becoming engaged. So this, what we read about in the Christmas story, it is a highly public event that didn't just happen between two people. What happened to Mary and Joseph was happening in the midst of a very messy family situation. It is a scandal, a scandal to say the least, that when Mary winds up pregnant and has to make this decision of hearing from God and talking to Joseph, what became of this situation was incredibly messy. For those who were strict Jews, this was tantamount to adultery, sex outside of marriage. They would have perceived this is absolutely sinful, an indiscretion that should be treated with much shame. In his book, The First Days of Jesus, Andreas Kostenberger and Alexander Stewart wrote it too. He says, if, if it were not for the final phrase from the Holy Spirit, Matthew would be doing nothing more than report, reporting a small town scandal about a young woman's pregnancy. Such a scandal would have brought incredible shame upon the girl's family and could have resulted in her death. You see, in Jesus' time, the Jewish culture was what's called in the ancient Near East an honor-shame culture, meaning when you did something, you embody not just your actions, your actions embody the hopes and the dreams and the values of your entire family. You represent them. Your actions impact the name and reputation of those around you. Still to this day, in Eastern societies, it's very much this way, an honor-shame culture. I don't think we as modern Western Americans understand how scandalous and how shameful this would have felt for people in a society like this. We live in a shameless society most of the time. Most people don't feel shame about incredibly dark things at times. And in this world where we have two poor Galilean teenagers who find themselves pregnant outside of marriage, this would have been a scandal in this little small town. I mean, this is, apart from God, apart from God, this is a generational, consequential thing that is happening. The text tells us two things about Joseph, and it says he was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want Mary to be a victim of public disgrace. In that one sentence, we see two things that we at least know about Joseph. We see that Joseph was that his faithfulness and his compassion, they went hand in hand. He was being faithful to the law. He wanted to be obedient, but at the same time, that obedience and his faith in God did not cripple his compassion, did not undercut his love for his wife. And this was no small task because imagine here what Joseph is feeling. The woman that you love has seemingly betrayed you, has broken your trust and broken your vows. Some in Joseph's time, what they would have done is weaponized the law against the one that hurt them. They would have used this to, as an excuse to throw Mary to the wolves because she is just suffering the consequences of her actions. And the law says it's okay, so I can take my revenge on her. 
That's not what we see in Joseph. Instead, Joseph, even in being committed to the Scriptures, even in being committed to being obedient to God, clings to compassion through the pain of a broken heart for his wife. And in sacrificial love, he chooses, he chooses the path of compassion over the path of shame. And if the story ends here, there's some honorable behavior here. This quiet but painful ending to an engagement where two families are just left with picking up the pieces of what they hoped would be their future. Joseph could, at this point, at least free himself from the harder parts of the story that would be ahead. Because Mary, in that society, and often in our society too, the women take the blame. The women take the fall. Mary would have borne the harder consequences. The shame that would come with her pregnancy, once he's done with his part of the quiet divorce, was totally on her. But through this quiet act of compassion, Joseph chooses something that his son would later embody. God had other plans. Continues, it says, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now stick with me here. An angel appears, and he announces the arrival of the Messiah to Joseph. And this is the Messiah that Joseph would have known as a faithful Jew that they have been crying out for. This is good news. This is the gospel that Joseph is hearing in a supernatural way. And yet the pathway for the coming of that news goes through Joseph's pain, goes through Joseph's sacrifice, goes through completely upending his life. Because in order for Joseph to be obedient to the gospel arriving in the world as God desired for it to be, he's laying down his desire. He's laying down his plans. He's laying down his reputation. He is laying down his good name and entering into the hard road with Mary. If Joseph chooses to walk with Mary in the midst of the shame that she would have experienced, he takes that upon himself as well. Again, he's a mirror of what we would later see in his son, choosing intentionally to take upon and walk with and bear the shame of those he loves. To follow God meant that Joseph would have to enter into circumstances that on his own, apart from this choice, he would not have to make. In the years ahead, it's not a stretch to think that Mary and Joseph would have been the victim of rumors, people talking behind their back, of people who remember, remember that was the girl that, pregnant. Remember how they said it was the Son of God? Joseph didn't have to enter into that. But Joseph, out of love, chose to enter into the story of shame that we see in Mary. I think sometimes we forget as we return to these stories over and over again, and we, we, we sanitize them. We make them nice and clean and hallmarky. 
But the truth is, is that Jesus was born into a very messy and complicated family dynamic. And it's been that way for generations, because right before this, we have what is likely the most skipped over part of the entire New Testament, and that is the genealogy of Jesus. How many of you have got some good reading in on the genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels? I bet you've read that so many times. I would say you have it memorized, right? No, because it's just naming names over and over again. And, and this is something that, that Jews would do. It's, it's a genealogy as a means of pointing to your family credentials. They almost always, when you look at Jewish genealogies, they almost always are all male and all Jewish because they want you to know we got a good family. We got a good background. You can look back and see we come from the good ones, Right. Well, something's weird about Matthew's genealogy because he does not do that at all. If you look back through it, first you see Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Jacob's in there. Jacob was a liar and a cheat. Read about him. He was a rascal, that man. Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth wasn't even Jewish. Ruth would not have been allowed in the temple. Bathsheba, well, we probably know what happened with Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the victim of David's lust for power. David himself is mentioned in there. Read up on David. That guy? Yikes. Lots of good, but there was far from the idealism of kingship that you would hope. And then there's someone named Tamar. Now, if you don't know who Tamar is, we don't have time to get into her story. But Tamar has one of the most Real housewives crazy stories in the entire Bible. Genesis 38, if you want to read it. It's too complicated and too weird to even get into. She was also a victim in so many ways. All of these stories in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chooses to not just put the good parts. Matthew chooses to point for all eternity in the Scriptures to the messier parts of Jesus' background. He chooses to introduce Mary and Joseph, not in a nice, clean, sanitized, beautiful picture. He chooses to remind us that God was born in the mess, not in the midst of a nice, clean, happy world. It's not just surprising that he includes women and non-Jews. It's also specifically pointing to places where we might otherwise shy away. In his commentary on Matthew, Stanley Hauerwas, he writes, Matthew's genealogy is a stark indication that God's plan is not always accomplished through pious people, but through passionate and thoroughly disreputable people. Jesus did not belong to the nice, clean world of middle-class respectability, but rather he belonged to a family of murderers, cheats, cowards, adulterers and liars. He belonged to us, and he came to help us. No wonder he came to a bad end and gave us some hope. Why is this good news? I'll give you one good reason. Think about your family. Think on that a bit. There's almost certainly parts of your story, your past and your present, your family, that you'd rather not see the light of day, right? Maybe in your immediate family right now, there are struggles and sins and failures you're wrestling with. Maybe you have 
people in your background, relationships that you've not wanted to think about for a very long time, and you'd rather just sweep them under the rug. I bet as I'm saying this today right now, you're thinking of a person or a situation or a story that as we even broach the subject, maybe your shoulders tense up. I get this because me too. (laughs) There are parts of my family, my background, my story that sometimes I don't want to bring into a season like this that's supposed to be happy. And yet, what we see in the scandal of the incarnation of Jesus entering into our humanity is that he does not send a cleaning crew prior to. He enters into our humanity in the same conditions that we are actually in in these moments, in the messiness of our relationships as they are in the struggles of our own family stories. God with us. When we say Emmanuel, God with us, it means God with us as we are, where we are, who we are. You know, one of the common axioms we we say around here a lot is that God meets us in reality. God does not meet us in the future version of ourselves that we think we should be. We think about that person a lot during this time of year as we begin a new year and think about who we want to be. And sometimes we project our faith as if God is thinking that too, that God is up there when we get our stuff together. But God actually meets us not in who we think we should be. God meets us in reality. God meets us in who we actually are here and now, not in the fixed and healthy and perfect, but in the messy present that we find ourselves in, that we cannot hide from. That is where God is entering. This is the message of the incarnation that we come to every single year, that God enters into our stories as they are. God enters into our reality. He does not come detached from our stories. He does not come disembodied from what we actually think and feel in these difficult seasons. He enters into the places where we ache. He enters into the stories we would rather not Him see. He enters into what we're hurting about right now. Dorothy Sayers, she writes that the incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall into a condition of being limited, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born into poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us and thought it was well worth his while. I've developed over this time this idea, this spiritual reflex that if I want to experience God, I have to get away. I have to escape from the confines of ordinary life because ordinary life is messy. Like if you, I mean, just like literally and figuratively, if you walked in my house right now, Lord help me. I, I want to escape what is actually here so I can go and be with God. Now, hear me. I love a good spiritual retreat. I do. I love getting away and being with God. 
But I've learned over time that I've lost a sense of expectation that God could actually meet me in the mess as it is instead of having to escape to get to him. Christmas is pointing us in the opposite direction, that God does not exist somewhere up on a high mountain away from the problems we face, that God came down into what we face, into the struggle that we feel, into the messes literally and figuratively that we find ourselves living in, and that is where he's longing to meet us. And I have this conviction about church as well. It's why as you walk in here, it's a bright room, because you don't go to church to escape reality. You go to church to actually see it clearly, to come into it as it actually is. That's where God meets us, is in reality. And so I don't want to come and gather on these Sundays and have an experience that just takes us out of what actually is. But today, you people see us. The lights are on. I see you. You see me. I see stories. I see struggles. I see tears. We are seen as we are as we enter into these rooms, not as an escape from what life actually is, but as we gather, as an opportunity to see it clearly once again. Sometimes life is so messy that I need to gather as we come into rooms like this and have my heart reoriented back to center once again to sing myself back into the hope that I know I have, but sometimes I do not feel. And that's why as we gather as a church, it's here. It's why we choose to be literally, physically here. Sometimes we've learned to look for God in this sanitized and extraordinary and this spectacular. When in reality, what we see over and over again is that God is meeting us in the messy and the ordinary. God is meeting us in the places we probably don't expect him to. Which brings us back to our man, Joseph. Joseph as an example for us in these days ahead. I want to show this picture here on the screen, one of my favorite pieces of art during the season. It's called Jose y Maria. I think I said that right. That sound good, Spanish speakers. Jose y Maria. It's by Everett Patterson. And I love this because it captures this messy reality in which God chose to enter into our world, not the nativity scene where everyone is calm and quiet and suspiciously white, but actual real-world messiness. When God met Joseph, God didn't meet Joseph by him standing out in front of the masses and speaking. He didn't meet him as a high priest in the temple. Joseph wasn't sent to the halls of power. God met Joseph through walking the road with his wife, changing diapers. That's where God met Joseph. God met Joseph in spite of whispers and rumors. God met Joseph in spite of family drama, and he came through in that obedience and met him there. God entered into the life of Joseph, into this mess, not through a sanitized and spectacular experience. God met Joseph literally in the messy and the ordinary, and that's the same way he's still entering our stories today. We have a week before Christmas, and chances are as we move into this week ahead, you're going to find yourself 
either with people or within stories and struggles that remind you of the places you forgot to look for God. Places and relationships, sufferings that perhaps you don't want to face. Maybe you're thinking of a person that will sit around a table with you that you don't want to have a conversation with. But the incarnation shows us that's actually where God is longing to meet us if we're looking. So I want to ask this question as we close and move into a time of prayer. What are the messier parts of my story where I've stopped expecting God to be present? What have I tried to clean up so God could show up? Instead, God's already there, right in the mess. As Jimmy and Michael come, I just want to take a few moments to be still within that. And just in this moment of stillness, a moment with more and more is so hard to find, just quiet and stillness. I just want you to meet with God here. And in that messiness, in that space where you've maybe pushed him out, I would ask you this morning to have the courage to just invite him into it. To say, Jesus, you have entered into our story through a mess. Jesus, you have entered into our struggles and felt the same pain we have. And so, Lord, with open hands, with open hands, we offer you up those places that we've always been afraid to give you. And God, we ask in that, we ask for breakthrough. We ask for breakthrough in relationships that are strained. We ask for breakthrough in the shame that we internally wrestle with. We ask for breakthrough, God, in the ways that we've given up. That you would renew our hope. That you would renew our mind. You lead us forward in that.